You are listening to The Current Podcast, the official podcast of UC San Diego's IT Services Department. I'm your host, Miguel Rodriguez. Today is Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. Take heed, dear listener. Tomorrow is April Fool's Day, so think twice before believing everything you see online. However, come Friday, you may resume believing without hesitancy or reservation everything you see posted. But forget about later in the week. What's important is today, which is my birthday. So I hope everybody is treating themselves to some good refreshments, some good music, being nicer to yourself today, all in observance of this fine holiday, Miguel's birthday. Yes, Mark Herzberger wrote for me to talk about uh, tomorrow being the opening day for 2021 Major League Baseball season, but more importantly, today is my birthday. So remember, show those colors. My color, my favorite colors, by the way, are black and red, very gothy. So the colors of Miguel Rodriguez on this fine Wednesday, March 31st, to commemorate my 43rd year on this planet, in this dimension, if you will. But anyway, on to our interview. Today, we welcome in Rick Wagner to learn about research IT. This is Mark Herzberger. Today, I'm joined by Rick Wagner. He's a principal systems integration engineer from our research IT services unit. Rick, welcome to the pod. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Mark. How long have you been with UC San Diego, and what do you do on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis? In my current role, I've been with UCSD again since May the 4th of last year. Before that, I was an undergrad at UCSD starting around 2003, and then after my time studying physics, I started working at the San Diego Supercomputer Center at the start of 2010. So I worked there for several years, and then took a break to go work for the University of Chicago, in particular, the Globus Group for a few years. In my current role in research IT, a large function function of my job and the other system integration engineer in our unit is to work with research projects on campus to help figure out what the potential optimal solutions for some of their technology challenges are. You know, they're either planning a grant or they're trying to solve an existing problem. And we don't wanna jump in with something that's overly complex that might be hard for them to implement with their existing staffing or capability. But likewise, we don't always wanna hand them something that's just a default solution for the kind of problem. So we spend a lot of time working with our facilitators, talking to them and the research projects and saying, why don't you look at this? And then if you need help, we might be able to come back and help you actually implement it and get you over the hurdle so that they can then maintain it. A large other part of my job is I have extramural funding because really it's by working outside of campus with other universities and funding agencies and things, for example, like I'm funded through the NIH on one project and I'm just starting another project funded through Caltrans where we see the problems that others are facing. Uh, And it's a very reasonable assumption that if other universities or researchers are facing a problem, someone on our campus is going to be dealing with a similar challenge. So I spend 
now almost half my time on those, and then the rest of it dedicated to campus supporting researchers and figuring out how to solve particular issues. And what, what are some of those particular challenges that you're trying to solve for researchers, or perhaps what's, a, what's one representative uh, example that you can think of? The, the ongoing one is still the data production rates. Researchers have many means now to collect and aggregate data and produce it either through simulations or instruments, like you know, we think of genomics data, or cryoelectromicroscopy, where they're able to do now four-dimensional renderings of complex molecules. This data production is at such a rate that a research group might be able to get to the point where they can publish a paper on it, but the data itself comes out so quickly, it's hard to integrate it into the whole, the, uh, the discovery capabilities, even within a single agency. So um, a group like the NIH might fund a lot of genomics research, but providing a way to let other researchers discover that data is a huge challenge. So how do we enable research groups broadly to discover data that's coming at us at the deluge or the flood rate that we kind of expected, which is really happening. And perhaps, Rick, what's an example of the scale of data or the scale of the uh, solution that needs to be implemented? I imagine this is way beyond, you know, sort of regular, like commercial or sort of off the shelf, if you will, uh, products and solutions. I wouldn't rule them out. The, you know, the term big data gets bandied about, and it's not always clear. Are we talking about the scale of the data, the terabytes, petabytes, whatever, although that is certainly an issue for everyone. It can also be the complexity of the data. Do you have multiple data sets in different formats and you're trying to take this relational or structural database and align it with these files with a particular format and do novel queries on them? So I wouldn't rule out commercial solutions like Box or Google Drive and things like that because those applied properly can help a researcher that's dealing with, you know, say they just have their laptop and they need to be able to work reliably with somebody outside of their organization or just gain access to data that's been made available. Some of those tools may work, but the other big part of research infrastructure is researchers are paid to do novel things. And so they are always creating new solutions to answer problems. And so a commercial or enterprise solution tends to optimize a fixed workflow. You know, I've got these point of sale transactions that I routinely process in the same way. And I can apply that to different customers because they have similar problems. Research infrastructure isn't always like that. It's more that, you know, they're being paid to solve a new problem that may require new tools that can build on some of these existing solutions, but it's going to require new tooling. So it can span different levels of existing and available components to what do I need to do that's new and unique for my research problem? Yeah, I hear you. I think that's probably true across uh, industries and hopefully we're on the, the right path here. We're gonna talk a little bit about a program that you're participating in uh, this year. It's a NSF fellowship called Trusted CI. This podcast will go in a completely interesting direction if CI means criminal informant, but I don't think it does. So 
<laughs> what is this program and why did you apply? Well, first, let me clarify that CI is a term that's used, especially within the National Science Foundation context, to refer to cyber infrastructure. Mm -hmm. They wanted a way to describe a lot of the funding that gets provided in terms of computing and education and software development for, you know, as I said before, the kind of new and interesting capabilities that have to be developed to enable the research. So as part of that, the NSF funds what's called a center of excellence, a long running institute, which is trusted CI to help improve the security and assurance and all those other important terms for the cyber infrastructure that is used by researchers. So this is a long running program run by the Indiana University and it provides research training or security training and engagements. And in fact, they were out here doing work with some of our ships at SIO to help ensure that their information security programs were at a reasonable level. And as part of that, a few years ago, they developed this fellowship program where they're building cohorts of researchers to become more familiar and adept with cybersecurity and information assurance. They, folks like myself that can then go work with research projects and help to guide them to the choices that they need to make and things they need to implement to help protect the data and trust that they're given as research projects. And so, okay, and your role in this, so it sounds like it's, it's a learning uh, program for you? Yeah, so the, as a fellow, I will be given some additional training on security. So understanding the context and the various compliance efforts that a research program might have to meet, what are some of the practices at the research projects may enable at different scales. And for myself, what I've been seeing for a while, especially since I first began working in high-performance computing in the data center, and again, when I was at the University of Chicago working in various federal projects is security and information assurance are becoming more and more critical to the research endeavor. You know, we can certainly point out to incidents like the ransomware attacks that have happened over the past year or two, some of the other risks that are involved with, you know, state actors and things like that. And researchers are already trying to solve a very hard problem in the science itself. And so as part of our role, and for me personally, as part of my role, when working the working with research projects, I want to be able to help them have the highest level of risk management that's reasonable for their efforts. And as part of the fellowship, how does it work between the training? Um, is it like classes or is there like a project or do you sort of meet and dialogue with the other fellows or all of the above? It's very much in all of the above. Mm -hmm. I'll be going through about six months of weekly training for about an hour a week on a virtual institute. And then depending on how travel and other things shake out through the rest of this year, I will attend and participate in one or more activities with the rest of the cohort. There's a lot of places for dialogue with the rest of the cohort of previous fellows and existing fellows because you know, as you know, I described, problems that we're facing or problems that they're facing are very likely to be similar to the ones that we're gonna see. And so it is very much all of the above. We wanna make sure that we have the training to be capable to improve the state of risk management for research projects, 
while at the same time understanding the landscape and what others are dealing with. And then there is an opportunity for a more in-depth project or engagement, something that might lead to a white paper or other materials towards the end of the project. Sounds very interesting. Congratulations. Um, sounds like a good uh, opportunity and also a good value add for UC San Diego once you're, once you're done with the program. You, you sent me some information before we got together, and uh, I, I noticed in there it said something to the effect of that your, your interest in cyber infrastructure grew out of your time pursuing a PhD in astrophysics. I found that quite interesting. Um, so what, what is it about astrophysics that you were interested in, and then how did you pivot that, if you will, to the cyber infrastructure career? I think it was, one, it's a route that I've seen others take where when you do your research using computing, there's always going to be a question that kind of emerges and it's probably weighs more heavily on some of us is how much of it is that the computing is really interesting and how much of it is it that the science is really interesting. Before I applied to UCSD, I was taking a summer course to, to get some of my physics requirements out of the way. And I met with the grad student that was teaching the course and I was just curious. I was like, so what is it that your lab does? And he described it as, well, our research group does some of the largest simulations of the universe. And by large, he meant both in terms of the physical space modeled and the complexity and performance of it. And he described a bit, and I found that really exciting. And when I eventually was attending UCSD, Mike Norman, the director of SDSC, was teaching one of the upper vision physics classes. And I walked up to him and I said, you know, I met one of your grad students when I was taking a class and I, I'd like to work in your group. It was, it was very direct and, and it's very typical, I think, for a lot of professors when they're teaching is to expect students to come up and be engaged. And so Mike took me on as an undergraduate to start enabling the data science in his laboratory. Now, regarding the cyber infrastructure side is the simulations that we do of the universe or of these molecular clouds run on the high-performance computing or supercomputing systems at massive scale, tens to hundreds to thousands of compute nodes or servers or however you want to think of them. And the data analysis for the research follows along at a pretty close scale to that. So first we called it the Terra scale. So we're talking about teraflops operations per second, um, two terabytes of data. And then eventually we moved on to petascale. So analyzing petabytes of data with petaflops of capability. And at some point, the more you want to do in harnessing the power of that hardware, the more familiar you have to be with what it's running on. You can't just arbitrarily run the code. You really have to become a bit of an expert in both. So anyone that's pushing those boundaries, it's kind of like a race car driver. They may not be the one building the car, but they're going to know a lot about it. And so I started to become much more familiar with the hardware and eventually, in part for financial reasons, I decided to make a segue over to the hardware as more of a, my career. And then that gave me the opportunity to see how research groups were using the HPC systems in novel ways and got me more interested in data movement and the whole, whole entire complex research cyber infrastructure system. 
And one last uh, item from your background, if you don't mind. Uh, LinkedIn uh, tells me that you were in the Army as a chemical operations specialist. So why the Army and what did you do in that role? Well, why the Army was pretty simple. Uh, I wanted a route that gave me more independence after high school. I didn't feel like I was quite ready to try and tackle college yet. And the Army College Fund and the GI Bill were something where I said to myself, if I can do my four years as an enlisted individual and I step out of the Army, if I don't make it a career, at the very least, it could enable me to cover college, which is how it played out for me. I tried going to college after the Army, didn't do so hot. But then when I recognized that my Army College Fund and the GI Bill, they have a 10-year time frame. Mm-hmm. And I was seven years into that. I was able to focus pretty directly on college. And that's when I got serious at Mesa and then transferred to UCSD. Now, as for what I did as a chemical operations specialist, I joined at the start of the Gulf War. And so that means, of course, I spent three and a half years in Germany. And I'm saying that a little facetiously, just, you know, if anyone remembers back around 90 and 91, that was a very short and intense conflict. And by the time I finished jump school, they didn't need chemical operations specialists in Saudi Arabia anymore. So they shipped us all to Germany to kind of be there and beef up the forces. And all these units all of a sudden got, you know, people to fill the roles where they couldn't before. And I ended up in an aviation unit where I spent most of my time as the company clerk. So I did a lot of slides. I spent some time driving trucks and got to enjoy being in Europe for a while. (laughs) All right, Rick, uh, I have to say you're a very interesting uh, gentleman. So I encourage everybody to perhaps get in touch with you or stop by on this magical time we Uh, return to campus. I really appreciate you joining us here on the current podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I really enjoy the chance to talk to the rest of the IT staff about what we do uh, within Research IT. I sure hope you're enjoying this podcast. Remember to let your fellow IT services staff members know that this podcast exists. Get everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you can get your podcasts. This podcast is a collaborative effort, and we want to hear from you. If you have any ideas for podcasts or topics, send them to me at its-podcast at ucsd.edu. That's it for today. Keep an ear out for the next episode of The Current Daily.